Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. The Christian life can only be lived and understood from the inside. It's only the insider who understands really what the Christian life actually is. It's something that resists very tenaciously outside observation. If you're in Christ and you remember the time before you were in Christ, what did Christianity look like to you then? Very different than it looks like now. You can only really understand Christianity from the inside. This is not unlike when you get a new job. Of course, it's important go to college or get training, you're preparing yourself, you're studying, but it's still on the level of theory. Then when you get the job and you actually begin working, things are very different. They're similar, but they're very different from the inside. Then they look from the outside. And you know that if you've begun any job, you know that that's true. It's not until you're on the inside and you've ceased to simply learn about the job and you're actually doing the job That's when you really come to understand it. If anyone's will, Jesus said, is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Meaning, if your will is not to do God's will, you simply won't know. You simply can't know whether Jesus' teaching is from God or spoken on his own authority as a mere mortal like the rest of us. It requires that your will be to do his will, that is that you be on the inside of Christianity, that you be a committed disciple and then you understand. Christianity is a path, it's a way, it's something you walk along, that's the picture of the early Christians, they were followers of the way. It's something you progress along, you don't stand aside from the path and look at the path, you walk along the path and that's the only way you make progress on it. It's for those who are on the inside. Now, you and I, that's a problem for us, because you and I, we want already to have arrived. You know that we don't like having to begin something and then learn slowly over time. If you get a new job, you envy those who have been there for decades and can do the job with ease, and you wish you were already there. The learning curve is not typically very fun. We don't want that. We're impatient. We want to be at the end. But it doesn't work that way in life. You may, as a younger mom, admire an older mom who always seems to know what to do and how to handle tantrums and different situations that are taking place, and you feel like you can never get there. But that older mom was once exactly where you are, and then they continued along the path, gained the experience, and arrived where they are. That's the way that life works. We would like to be able to sit on the outside, read the books, observe from a classroom and know completely and have a masterful comprehension of whatever the task is before us, but that's not the way life works. Most things in life, you can learn something of on the outside, but you don't really learn until you're on the inside. And Christianity is just the same way. Christianity, therefore, is not some clean, sterile environment that you put under the microscope that you learn nicely in classes and then you are already arrived at the end of your destination. Christianity smells like scaly fishermen. 
It smells dirty and earthly like the old patriarchs with all their flaws and failures. Because Christianity is something lived. It's not just some abstract concept, some idealization. It's real life. It's something you live and you progress in and you do it from the inside and you have to start at the beginning and then you are making your pilgrim's progress, if you will, on your way toward perfection. We Christians do speak a lot of heaven and eternity and holiness and some people might wrongly assume that we've already arrived there. It's not true. It's our goal. It's the direction we're headed, but we're not there yet. Because the Christian life is a path. It's a progress. Proverbs 4.18 says that the path of the righteous is like the light of the dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. Which means when you first start walking, it's very dim. It's very dark like we saw last week. Your faith is small. Your understanding is limited. Your holiness might be minimal and As you walk, the sun rises up from off the horizon until it's in the middle of the sky. But it doesn't immediately jump there any more than it does in a single day. It takes time slowly to make its orbit to the pinnacle. And that's true of the Christian life. This is why Christianity is only understood really from the inside. If you're not on the inside of Christianity, if you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ, you can know something about Christianity. You can read your Bible and understand the English words, certainly. But you don't really understand what it is to follow Christ unless you're following Christ. This principle is presented to us this morning in story form in our text in Luke where we've come. Jesus has just resurrected, you may remember, and in Luke's account, we're still at that very same day, the first day of the week. Events started early in the morning, we're now later in the day. This is the dawn of Christianity, and what we've been seeing is weak faith with the women who went to the tomb, with the disciples, the apostles who wouldn't believe them, and now we're going to continue to see weak faith in two other of Jesus' disciples. These two men who are walking to Emmaus, they're going to struggle to understand. But the key thing is, they're walking. That is, spiritually speaking, they are disciples. Weak as their faith is, limited as their understanding is, they are on the inside as committed followers of Jesus. And therefore, Jesus is not ashamed, as we'll see, to come alongside them and help them in their faith to grow. So let's see this, beginning Luke 24, verse 13. That very day, when Jesus rose, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about All these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together. Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them. What's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, 
Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? Luke alone of the gospel writers includes this event for us and we are very glad that he does because, I don't know about you, but I can see myself in these disciples. I think that you can as well. These two who are walking to Emmaus, one of them named Cleopas, that's all we know about him. We don't even know the other's name. It's not the most important part of this story. Obviously, you can put yourself in the position of the unnamed disciple if you want, because we are these disciples. Like us, they have started on the pilgrim way. They were Jesus' followers. It says in the text, two of them, the them being disciples. They followed Jesus in his lifetime. Now he's been brutally killed, and they're walking, talking about Jesus and the possibility of a resurrection. Now, in this text, they're literally walking to Emmaus, and that, therefore, is a good picture, just like we used the picture of light last week. We're going to use the picture of walking, because that's what they're doing. And so, we're going to focus, just like Luke's text does, first on these two walkers, these disciples who are just very much like you and I are, little in their faith, but they are walking, and so second, we're going to look at the third walker which is Jesus himself, the text says, who, because they're on the inside, because they are walking, he's going to help them come to an understanding over the next few weeks. So let's look at them, the two walkers who are much like us, the disciples, and then turn our attention to the one who joins them. So focus your eyes first on these two walkers of our text, these two early disciples of Jesus, Cleopas and the other. And look again at the text. It says that very day, two of them, We're going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. I don't want to read something into this text that is not there, so let me give you full disclosure. It says that they are walking together, and I'm going to use that as a picture of spiritually what's happening I don't know if Luke meant for it to be that. They are walking. That's interesting. I don't know if Luke intended it. I don't know if the divine author God himself meant us to see a picture in that. Maybe, maybe not. And so since it's an uncertainty, you can just consider it a sermon illustration. I'm just using it as a picture, okay? So we're going to use their physical walking seven miles to Emmaus as a picture of the more important thing that's happening because we don't hear anything else about Emmaus. It's not really that important that they get there. The important thing is that spiritually they're walking. Spiritually they're on a journey. They're traveling and Jesus is going to help them grow in their faith, make progress on the way just as he helps us. So the literal walking first. They're literally walking seven miles to a place called Emmaus. Now we're not certain where Emmaus is. There are different contenders for that title just like the location of Jesus' burial It's probably one of those. We're not certain. It's not that important because the important thing in this text is not the exact location of Emmaus or anything about the town Emmaus. It's simply that they're walking there, which gives us the context for something else to happen, which is going to be Jesus meeting them and talking with them. It's just a setting. We know it's within seven miles of Jerusalem. We would kind of know that anyways because we're going to see they get there And they come back to Jerusalem all in the same day. So it's within seven miles and they're walking to Emmaus. 
So if the setting there is not really the important part, what is the event of that setting that is the important part? And you see it in verse 14. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. That's the important place of focus for us. And we first wonder, what exactly are these things that have happened that they're talking about? And you don't have to wonder because we'll see in the following weeks. If you just look down a few verses to 19 and onward, they explain exactly what they're talking about. They're talking, quote, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. So they're discussing Jesus as a prophet. Surely he was a prophet. I'm guessing these are the things they're saying. Surely he was a prophet. He was mighty in word indeed, right? And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Well, then how is he a prophet, the promised Messiah, if he's been crucified? But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. How is this going to fulfill the prophecies if he's now dead? Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us just this morning. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they didn't find his body, they came back saying they'd even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us, Peter and John, went to the tomb, found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So they're discussing, so what does this mean? Was his body stolen? Did they see angels? Is this true? Those are the things they're talking about on their way to Emmaus. The life, the death, and the possible resurrection for them of Jesus. Emphasis on the possible resurrection And the women's testimony about it. Now our guess is that they didn't yet believe in the resurrection. And why do I say that? Just looking at the text, I think verse 17 suggests it. Jesus will say to them, what is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And how do they respond? They stood still looking sad. The standing still is probably just shock that this person doesn't know all these things took place. It's the talk of the town. But the looking sad, where does that come from? If they believed the testimony of the angels through the women that Jesus had really risen from the dead, they would not be sad. You're sad at funerals. You're not sad at weddings and birthdays and good news. This is good news. And if they believe the good news of the angel... This is what puts the good in the good news. They would be elated, not sad. If they're sad, it's because they're still living at Jesus' funeral. They've not yet come to grasp his resurrection from the dead. Like all the rest of the disciples, they're struggling to comprehend what Jesus had predicted, what the prophets had predicted, that he would rise on the third day. And therefore, they're sad. They don't really fully believe it. So we might imagine them at sort of the outset of their journey, not just literally at the outset of their journey to Emmaus, but they're also, in a sense, at the outset of their spiritual journey of following Jesus after the resurrection. They have a little faith, little faith, but you see, it's 
it's not like they are comparable to Pilate. Pilate was hostile to Jesus and for political reasons has him put to death. They're not like the religious leadership. They didn't believe, but they didn't believe almost in a different way. It was a hostility, a desire to drive Jesus to his death out of envy. That's not these disciples. They might have little or no faith like these others, but they're different. How are they different? They're walking. To Emmaus, yes. But I mean spiritually, they're two of them. These are disciples of Jesus. And that's why you notice they've not just moved on. They may be going home from the Passover. They may even be leaving the group of the disciples thinking Jesus is gone. We're going back to our lives. That's possible. Doesn't tell us why they're walking to Emmaus. But either way, as they're walking to Emmaus, what are they doing? They are talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Or as the next verse says, they were talking and discussing together. These are not people hostile to the resurrection or to Jesus. They're actually very friendly to Jesus. Certainly they would love him to be resurrected. It's just that they don't yet grasp that fact. They're not morally, personally, politically opposed to this happening the way the religious leaders are. These are disciples of Jesus. It's just they can't quite grasp what seems impossible to them. And that is that Jesus should have resurrected that the women would be right. Now, we can cut them some slack because, look, we live now 2,000 years after the fact and we struggle to comprehend and embrace what has happened now with years of confirmation. This was literally the same day. (laughs) So they're trying to comprehend. They're trying to believe. They're not believing, though. They're failing in that. Now, you might find yourself in a spot not unlike these disciples today. And that's why I draw out a characterization of them because it's a lot like us. This may be you. You're not hostile to Christianity. You're not hostile to Christ. You're not against the doctrines of the Bible. In fact, you may be an insider. You're a disciple. You believe, only you struggle with doubting. At times your faith wavers. You see other Christians who are confident and you crave that for yourself. But that's not where you may be right now. You may be closer to the beginning of your journey or further along it, but just struggling with faith for various reasons. And that's very much what we find in these persons here. Look, you may be like Martha standing outside her dead brother's tomb and hearing Jesus say that he will rise again and you believe it, but do you? And you say, Lord, by now he's dead for days and he'll stink. You want to believe it. You believe in a resurrection. Can Jesus do this? And the faith wavers. Martha is not Jesus' enemy. But in her case, she's bound by this fairly small circle she's inscribed of the things she considers possible for God or realistic or likely in this world based on the things she knows. Has she ever seen someone rise from the dead before? No. Have you? No. Almost certainly not. And so now you are presented here in this book with a doctrine that is to be the core of your entire life. And it is a dead person coming back to life. And for some great faith, great hearts here, you will grab hold of that with a strong faith and unwavering will move forward confidently. 
And for others, you will try. You're walking, you're discussing, and you need, just like they needed Jesus to come into their life, you need the great faiths, the great hearts to come into your life and help your faith along. But you may be like that, your faith wavering. You may be like the father desperate in Mark chapter 9 who cries, I believe! Help my unbelief. If that's your heartfelt cry, I mention this to tell you, you are not forsaken of God. Any more than these men are on their walk. Your lack of faith is not a good thing. I'm not saying that whatsoever. Neither is mine, if I have any here. But the genuine disciple of Christ who says with Simon Peter, that chief of the apostles, Lord, to whom will we go? Where are we going to go? We struggle with belief, okay? To whom shall I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. The person who says that in a heartfelt manner, like these Emmaus disciples, will be treated like these Emmaus disciples. Jesus doesn't castigate them. He doesn't cast them away or reject them. As we'll see, he comes alongside and he helps them. Because they're on the inside. Their faith is weak. They've just started the journey of faith, but they're on the inside. It's the only way to live the Christian life. They're not the religious leaders calmly from the outside criticizing what they see of the way. They are literally on the way. Jesus will not reject you if that's you. With your little faith, desperately wanting to follow and believe and struggling, he will not reject you. How do I know that? Look at your text, verse 15. It's the same Jesus we're talking about. And in their case, while these men were talking and discussing together in unbelief, sad, Jesus himself did not run away, did not leave them. Jesus himself, what? Drew near and went with them. You and I might expect him to stay far away, not to bother himself with these unbelieving disciples. He's predicted his resurrection so many times, said it would be on the third day. If they can't believe it, he's done with them. That's maybe our expectation. Maybe that's how your father or your someone has treated you in the past, and now you're importing that onto Jesus. It's not true. Look at him here. He draws near to help them, even though their faith is so small. So these two walkers, they are a lot like you and I. We're walking on the pilgrim way, and you start, as in everything, with a small faith, but Jesus is committed to helping your faith grow. And he does that even with them. So turn your attention now in our text from these walkers who are a lot like us, these disciples. Look at the third one who joins them, quite different than they are. In our text, it is Jesus himself. Jesus himself drew near and went with them. It's not just Jesus. It's Jesus himself. And why should Luke point it out like that? Because there's a great irony in this passage. You feel it. They're talking about Jesus, wondering if he could possibly have risen from the dead. And here comes the risen Jesus himself, whom they're talking about, to walk with them. So it's an ironic passage, so Luke points that out for us. And we would think that this is going to settle the question, of course. If you wonder if he's alive, as soon as he's talking with you, you know that he's alive, except that Jesus has other purposes. So he conceals his own identity. Look at that in our text, verse 16. 
but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Were kept by God from recognizing Jesus. Jesus is playing the part of Joseph in the Old Testament who hid his identity from his brothers in Egypt. That's what he's doing here to test them. Now, we find this behavior very odd. It's maybe not how you would have done this. We are impatient. So, we expect Jesus comes, settles the dispute, reveals his glory. I'm alive. Stop doubting. End of story. End of Luke. We move on to the next book. But that's not the way Jesus handles this situation. He is a part of a purpose that includes, for a short time, concealing his identity from these disciples. That's odd. I mean, we don't want Jesus to do that to us. (laughs) So why is he doing that to these disciples, not immediately revealing himself? They're sad. He could make them happy right now. But you know from experience, if you're on the inside of Christianity, it's not always the way that God works in our lives. Immediate relief. It's not what he does with them. If we were Joseph in Pharaoh's court, as soon as the brothers arrive, throw off your disguise, it's me. But that's not what Joseph does because he has other purposes. And similarly, Jesus in his perfect wisdom has purposes that will result in more good for his disciples by delaying their recognition of him than if he immediately showed himself to be the person they're talking about. This is very similar to what happened to Mary Magdalene that same morning when she was at the tomb. The Gospel of John tells us she mistook the risen Jesus for a gardener. Her eyes similarly were kept back from recognizing him at first until he spoke with her and then she knew it was him. That's what's happening here as well. So we do have to ask the question, what exactly is Jesus hoping to accomplish here besides making an interesting story? Because he could make them very happy, so if he's going to do something else and they're going to persist in sadness for a time, there must be a reason. He's not sadistic. He's going to be kind to them. So what is his good purpose in their life? It's hard for us at times in our own walk with Christ when he feels distant, when we're fighting some sin or we are seeking some kind of a victory, we're praying for someone who is lost and you don't find immediate answers. You don't find immediate relief. And it can feel frustrating and you can be tempted to doubt that Jesus is even walking with you. Maybe it is your littleness of faith and he's forsaken you entirely and that's why he doesn't hear your prayers. But it's very different in this case. In fact, in the Bible, it doesn't often play out immediately the way that we would want. Think about Israel in the Old Testament. Do you remember when God brought his people out of slavery and he promised to give them a land, the land of Canaan? And when he finally brought his people to the land of Canaan under the authority of Joshua, they went into the land and God told them, drive everyone out because they're very evil and if you leave them, they'll tempt you into evil things. And God promised them, if you do this, I'll go with you. It will be easy. I will do it for you. You just come along. I'll send my hornet ahead of you. We'll drive the enemy out. But you remember that although we might expect immediately God destroys the enemy, it didn't work out that way. Part of that was due to Israel's own sin and failure. But it wasn't completely due to Israel's failure. God, in fact, had purposes for his people in not immediately driving out their foes that were more good than if he had. So I'll give you some examples. In one place it says, God tells his people, I will not drive them out before you in one year. 
That's what we would like. <laughs> One year, okay, let's be done. No, I won't do that. Why? What's God's purpose? Because he doesn't love his people? No. He says, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I'll drive them out. Step by step on the walk of faith here. Little by little, I'll drive them out from before you until you've increased and possessed the land. Uh -huh. You know what? We didn't think about the beasts. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought of that. I think just kill all the enemies. Um, but then you would have new enemies, which would be animals. And God thinks about that. And therefore, that's one purpose among many for why he gives a slow fulfillment of his promise rather than immediate, like we would like. But God's always has, God always has many purposes. So he gives another one in another place. He says he won't drive them out quickly, quote, in order to test Israel by them whether they'll take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. He gives another purpose just afterward. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who'd not known it before. Therefore, he leaves people in the land. Look, we like to think we're very imaginative people, but the fact of the matter is when we're guessing at God's purposes, we're simply not. We can see one purpose, one reason to do one thing, and we think God should do that thing, drive them out immediately, or in the case of the Emmaus disciples, reveal yourself right now, don't delay, there's no reason to, reveal yourself and bring happiness, and we think that in our lives too, if there's some difficulty or hardship or sin we're attempting to overcome, whatever it may be, we can only think, if God loved me and knew what was best, he would immediately relieve me of this problem. Jesus would show up, reveal himself, end of sadness, now we're happy, end of story. God's thinking about the beast too, you know. God has a lot of purposes. And you might see just one of them. Therefore, we can trust his wisdom. And in our text right here, Jesus is wise in concealing his identity from these disciples, even though it will cause them sadness longer, even though he could do otherwise. He knows that's not best for them, just like it's not usually best for us. So that's what Jesus does here in our text. He knows by his wisdom what will be best. So he conceals his identity and then with his identity concealed, begins asking them questions. It's not dishonesty on Jesus' part. He's not telling them a lie. He's simply concealing his identity and asking questions to them. So verse 17, his question is, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? Again, very ironic. It's all about him. He asks another question in 19. We'll see what things. Jesus chooses based on his knowledge of what's best for his followers in this text he chooses to preserve the journey toward understanding he could just reveal himself and the disciples would have arrived if he just said I'm Jesus here I am here's my wounds like Thomas they fall on their knees my Lord and my God they have arrived at the end of their faith journey and yet Jesus specifically chooses to lead them out by questions concealing his identity to test them to help them grow incrementally over time they have to do work here it's not just an immediate comprehension they are working toward understanding 
And it doesn't have to be that way, but Jesus chooses to make it that way for them and for us as we read it. I mean, when they ask out of their ignorance, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Jesus could say, actually, I'm Jesus. <laughs> End of story. Not a visitor. I'm Jesus. And he doesn't do that. He chooses not to do that. We'll see that in the following weeks. He has purposes, and this is the key purpose for him. He's preserving, for reasons of his own, a gradual development of belief, just like he does in our lives. He doesn't have to. He could snap his finger and you perfectly believe, are sanctified, glorious, you begin to glow, you ascend up through the clouds. He could do that right now, and he hasn't done that. He wants you to grow incrementally. He wants his disciples to walk on the way. It brings him glory. It brings him honor. It's for our good. And therefore, he leaves them walking. Of course, look, you and I, just the way we are, we wish he would. We wish it was like you start a new job and you already know exactly how to do it. That's what you've always wished when you start a new job. But it's never worked that way, has it? You wish you become a mother and you already know exactly how to raise your children. You don't know. You learn as you go along. That's the way God designed it to be. Look, of course you grieve your unbelief and you fight vehemently against your sin and you lament your failures and your weaknesses and you wish they were not there. Of course you do. Of course, with Paul, you do this one thing. Forgetting what lies behind, you press forward toward what lies ahead according to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Of course you do that. Of course, with the author of Hebrews, you lay aside your encumbrances, those weights, the sin which clings so closely. With endurance, you run the race that is set before you. Of course you do that. And I'm not arguing against that. But I'm merely saying, remember that it's incremental. That's not an excuse to sin. But if you forget that it's incremental in your own life, if you forget that it's a way and you're walking as much as these Emmaus disciples are, then you're going to be discouraged because you're going to see the end that you're working toward, think you already should be there for sure, and you will lose heart. Because Hebrews says, you set aside the encumbrances, you run with endurance, fixing your eyes on Jesus. And that's what we're doing this morning. I'm pointing your attention to Jesus, do you see how when he comes along these weak faith disciples who are just trying to progress in understanding that he not only preserves that dynamic, says keep working on that, but he's gracious to them. He doesn't reject them for their littleness of faith. He actually encourages them and helps them to grow in their faith just as he does with you. If you're not already perfect, you're not. So if you're not already perfect, you can know it's because God has a purpose in moving you toward perfection over time. There's a process involved. You grow toward it. If at times in this life God seems distant, it looks like Jesus isn't with you because you're not seeing immense success in everything that you do, know that there is a purpose at times when Jesus conceals himself from these disciples and allows them with questions to wrestle through what's happening. And to come to those conclusions, because we'll see later, he will open their eyes. It's going to happen. He just wants it to be a process for them and for us. Look, we are not unaware of the wiles of the devil. If you 
cannot embrace the fact that the Christian life is a way that takes time for you to grow, then you put yourself in danger of the devil discouraging you because think about it. He's always standing by Joshua the high priest to point out the dirt on his clothes. The devil is the accuser and Revelation 12 says he's the accuser of the brethren who accuses them day and night before God. The devil is working heartily in this world to convince every lost person there is that they're completely fine And he's working just as hard to convince everyone here who's truly a disciple that Jesus wants nothing to do with you. Because you don't have a strong, powerful faith. You're not an immense, great evangelist. You don't share the gospel with every neighbor you have. You've not been successful in doing it. You're not raising your children perfectly. And therefore, Jesus wants nothing to do with you. Go away from his presence. That's what the devil is working very hard to convince you of all the time. So when we come to a text like this, it's fitting to just pause and notice one example where Jesus encountered disciples like us with little faith. Where's the furrowed brow? Where's the cruelty? Where's the harshness? Where's the whip? Where is the sharp tongue he did use against the stubborn? He doesn't use it against them. Rather what? He draws near to these little faith disciples and walks with them and draws them out with questions, helping them to understand eventually. May the Lord rebuke the devil and may he even do it by this text and remind us his graciousness. If you're a true disciple of this master, if you're walking on the pilgrim way, you're not walking it alone. No matter how sinful you may feel yourself to be, Jesus walks it with you. And if from the outside, Christianity looks utterly impossible in every way, very well. But from the inside, we know it is possible because we do not walk it alone. But no matter how little our faith, no matter how much we struggle, Jesus comes alongside, draws near, walks it with us. And with Christ, all things are possible, even this. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that these things are true and the example you have given us, for this is not recorded for no reason, the example you have given to us of your interaction with Cleopas and the other disciple is meant to encourage us. You are gracious with the women who come to anoint your corpse. You are gracious with the apostles who at first do not believe. You are gracious with these two men who have little faith and are grieved even after they've heard the news of your resurrection. And you are gracious with us. You do not cast us away for the littleness of our faith, but you intend and you will have your intention. You intend to grow our faith, to turn us from whatever we are now into something more perfect, more holy, more good, more loving, more fruitful, more beneficial to others and to the kingdom, more hopeful, more alive in the truest sense. It's your intention to do it, but by a process that takes time, I pray you'd grant us patience that we would, with the psalmist, wait upon the Lord and that we would talk about these things and strive to understand, trusting that you will, in your good time, reveal these things to our heart and help us to grow. It's for the sake of your great name we pray. Amen.